You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off, wherever you get your podcasts. If I ask you, where are you right now? You could pin your location down to a patch of real estate the size of a throw rug. And even if you couldn't, your smartphone could. It's hard to own a telephone and go off the grid to lose touch. But there was a time when that was easy. Humans got lost. But with a clock, a sextant, a table of mathematical functions, well, you just might find your way home again. Ah, clear night. Grab my sextant and just sight the altitude of Polaris here. Check our latitude. Oh, rough seas. Okay, now line up the horizon. Ow, that nearly took me eye out. All right, check the time on little Ben here. That's 63 degrees, 22 minutes. Ah, salt water overblasted everything. But today... Wait, is it this corner or across the street? Where is the On Shaky Grounds coffee shop? 35 Main Street. Where am I? 43 Main Street. All right, map it. And the very first question we ask friends on the phone or in a text... Hey, what are you doing right now? Okay, well, the second question... Where are you? That's for me to know and you to check Foursquare. There are prisoners who wear monitoring devices on their ankles, but they do that reluctantly. We willingly carry ours in our pockets... Determining where we are, it's become terribly simple. But knowing where we are doesn't make being stranded a thing of the past. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology and where they're headed. And our super-sophisticated position-finding equipment tells us where we're headed. It's so accurate and smart, but it doesn't necessarily get us out of trouble. Remember the days of going for a drive and getting lost. You'd be driving down one unfamiliar street and then another, stopping to ask locals or pulling a map from the glove compartment. Remember those paper maps? You'd turn them around and squint at road numbers, all so you could find your way back to the highway. Well, no more. As Gary experienced in our dramatization of looking for a coffee shop, based on real events, not only is navigation out of your hands and in the ones and zeros of your digital device, It's in everyone else's hands as well. You're not lost, and others can find you, like it or not. Journalist Hiawatha Bray has written a book about our navigational omniscience, You Are Here, From the Compass to GPS, The History and Future of How We Find Ourselves. And we asked him how he likes to identify himself. Hiawatha Bray, literary titan. And how he is more often identified. 
I'm a technology reporter for the Boston Globe, where I write about the digital devices that make our lives so exciting and, at times, so challenging. And it is challenging, but not when it comes to figuring out where we are. For hundreds of thousands of years, humans have struggled to do this, and sailors in particular, because, well, there are no landmarks on the oceans, obviously. I'm, I'm just trying to imagine what a landmark on the ocean might look like. Yeah, floating coffee shop. Well, after the Renaissance, science came to the rescue. When Captain Cook mapped the South Pacific in the late 1700s, getting lost at sea was becoming a lost art. By the time of Captain Cook, they had gotten it pretty accurate. I mean, by that time, you have people who are actually sailing into the Pacific pretty reliably getting where they expected to go. Uh, you know, by this time, of course, you're, you're, you have uh, various lunar charts that people are using to give them a fair idea of how to find longitude. Everybody knows the story of longitude and of John Harrison and his famous timepiece, but those didn't come into widespread use until really the 19th century, and people were using other methods, using uh, lunar charts to figure out uh, longitude. But by that time, they were getting it pretty accurate, but you still had to have very highly trained, specialized people to do it. So navigation at that time, I mean, you would measure... The, the positions of some stars or the sun or the moon or something right. like that. And then you would have to do some mathematics. You'd have to do some spherical geometry. Absolutely. I mean, this, is, this wasn't elementary arithmetic. Oh, yeah. And, and the most important person on a ship back then was the navigator. And if you did not have a trained navigator, you just wouldn't be able to get anywhere. And a lot of the people on those ships did not know how to do it. It was a very highly specialized, almost a black art. When did radio enter the picture? When could you first use radio to... Not just to call for help, but actually to navigate. Well, I mean, almost as soon as radio was invented, people realized that that was one of the things that it was going to be good for. And you start seeing people starting to use directional equipment, like in the early 20th century. You have, uh, for example, the development by the two Italian guys, Bellini and Tosi, who come up with a device that can figure out the direction from which a radio signal is coming and home in on its uh, location. And that starts actually fairly early on, not too long after radio broadcasts become commonplace. So these examples demonstrate, Hiawatha, how we've gone from the kind of navigation that was used by, I don't know, the Polynesians, where they found mm -hmm. their way from one island to another by looking at, you know, stuff drifting in the ocean, the positions of the stars. I mean, it was all very, yeah. you know, very simple and not terribly accurate. And, you know, every couple of centuries, they'd come up with a new way to, to navigate. This has been one of the biggest problems of humankind, how Absolutely. to navigate. Now we're at GPS, right? Absolutely. GPS. And that was an amazing breakthrough that almost, it's almost like hitting the rewind button because we're back to using the stars almost. We're looking into space to figure out how to find our way. But in this time, in a, in a very different way. And and GPS is about, well, it, it's, it's fascinating on so many different levels. Like, for example, the fact that the whole thing really got started when the Russians beat us in the space race. They didn't realize it, but by beating us in the space race, they gave us a head start in the navigation race. Do you know that story? No, tell me that story. Well, no, basically, it's very simple. Sputnik's rolling overhead, and the U.S. is embarrassed. This is 1957. And some scientists at uh, Johns Hopkins started thinking, you know what? I bet you if we listen to the, the signal coming from the Sputnik and we analyze the Doppler shift of the frequencies, we could calculate where that satellite is, exactly where it is in space. And they figured out they were able to do it. 
now their boss was a guy who was working with the us navy and the navy had run into this real problem they were getting ready to launch missiles from submarines but they couldn't figure out how to aim them because they wouldn't know exactly where the sub is and he said this could be our answer if you can figure out where the satellite is you could reverse that and then figure out if i hear a signal from a satellite i now know where i am on earth and it worked the first time they did it was a system called transit and transit worked and the US Navy used it but it was very very slow because there were so few satellites and they decided to improve on it and that's what we have today in GPS and it works amazingly well well tell me how well it works I mean if I have a GPS and you know it tells me okay here's your latitude and longitude but but it doesn't give an error bar so I mean what is the accuracy of that thing or the one in my it, car it, it depends there I mean the ones we use for civilian purposes are already I think just incredibly accurate to within about usually 30 40 feet depending on how many satellite signals you're getting by the way if you have a newer smartphone like the latest Apple and so on we not only now get GPS signals but the newest phones also give us the signals from the Russian version of GPS called GLONASS. And if you put the American GPS and the Russian GLONASS signals together, they're even more accurate. And if you have really state-of-the-art GPS gear, you're able to get centimeter-grade accuracy. Okay, so the way GPS works then, it's basically a radio receiver. It's listening to these satellites. That's right. And it looks at the time signals coming from those satellites. It, it works out how long it took that signal to get from that satellite to where it is from a couple of satellites. And after that, it's high school geometry. Correct that. Middle oh, school geometry to yeah. figure out where you are. Yeah, and I'm glad you hit on that point about time. That is extremely important. One of the most important things about GPS is that it is an extraordinarily accurate measure of time. All those satellites have atomic clocks in them. The whole reason it works is because it's able to calculate these incredibly small variations in the time between one signal arriving at your phone and another signal and another. It needs to receive it from at least four different satellites. And the only reason it can work is because each satellite has an extremely precise atomic clock on board. So the invention of the atomic clock made all of this possible. So if I have a GPS in my car, and I would if I rented one, <laughs> I don't have to worry about being lost. I mean, I might still make a wrong turn. Yeah, but... or the maps might be wrong. Uh, sometimes GPS gives you incorrect information. Sure. But mm -hmm. the days of having no idea where you are or how to get to where you're going... Are those really gone now? Well, if you have the right equipment, pretty much, yes. It's not perfect, of course. There are places where GPS does not work. I mean, there are still going to be places where you're not going to be able to get a signal. But that doesn't happen that often. Although, you know, you have to be very careful if you're using a phone-based GPS because they use a combination of the GPS satellites and the phone system. Something really weird happened to me this year. My wife and I drove from the United States into Canada, and as soon as we got to Canada, the GPS stopped working. It was the GPS on my phone, and the phone didn't work in Canada. <laughs> well, I kind of wonder, though, whether we haven't lost something by not being able to be lost anymore. I mean, uh, being lost was an uncomfortable feeling. Well, yeah. But on the other hand, uh, it sort of provoked, I don't know, creative response. I mean, you, you had... You know, you had to live by your wits. Now you live by this device. I think you're, you're actually covering something that I think is a much bigger issue, which is that in the modern world, we are constantly on all the time. And it's not just GPS. It's the fact that every move we make is recorded. There are databases that cover every area of our lives. And this is just one more example of how we can no longer disappear. Human beings used to be able to disappear. 
and just be, you know, by themselves. One of the implications of especially phone-based GPS technology is that not only can you know where you are at all times, but they know where you are at all times. Those phones are transmitting your location. And we're in this world now where we can't really fade away and disappear. And yeah, it does bother me sometimes. You know, I, I'm a great fan of the uh, classic age of exploration, maybe from the 1400s through the 1700s. Yeah, because you didn't have to do it. <laughs> it was nasty. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure your, your chances of uh, not coming back were always much higher than Oh, than incredibly you dangerous. But... But that aside, uh, I have to say that a lot of those a lot of those discoveries benefited from the fact that these guys got lost a lot. Oh, absolutely! So, I mean, everybody knows that Columbus didn't know where he was, and when he got there, he did. He still didn't know where he was. Yes, but it's it's somewhat ironic, isn't it, that the great age of exploration could just as well be called the great age of lost people finding new stuff. But I'm sorry, that's what exploration is. By definition, you don't know where you're going. <laughs> that's the whole point. And we find that whole concept of not knowing where you're going bizarre and almost alien to us. And I think that might be, I think there's a human need to get back to that. People still miss that. We like the idea of going out to places that nobody has seen before, and even if it means not coming back. And that's not a new thing. The people who settled this country, most of them came over the ocean, and they knew they weren't coming back. They knew it. And they said, fine. And that's still a part of human nature, and we have, I guess, lost that. Most of the time, that's good. But sometimes, I don't know. <laughs> well, Hiawatha, where do we go from here? You've mentioned GPS can be accurate to know, less than a foot easily oh, enough. Yeah. Have we come to the end of the navigational line? I mean, for centuries, there was an awful lot of brain power expended on schemes to tell us where we were, especially on the featureless expanses of the ocean. Mm -hmm. is, is that all past tense now? I mean, is that just I the end of that? I think so in, the terms, in terms of the basic toolkit. Obviously, there are still going to be needs to improve the application of this technology. Like I said, I mean, there are places where uh, GPS is still not perfect and you need to find other ways to supplement it. But I don't think we need to invent anything else to find things anymore. Just better ways of implementing the existing stuff that we've got. Hiawatha Bray, thank you so very much for helping us uh, navigate a very interesting topic. Oh, you're welcome. You can find Hiawatha Bray on his beat as a technology reporter for the Boston Globe. He's the author of You Are Here, From the Compass to GPS, The History and Future of How We Find Ourselves. And actually, I like getting lost. Really? Yeah, it doesn't happen very often it always It always terrified me if I was really lost because either you had to be somewhere on a, at a specific time and maybe you weren't going to make it, or worse than that, you weren't going to get back. And I think we're hardwired to be afraid of getting lost, frankly. Yeah, well, I think some of the adventure is missing when we always know where we are. Admittedly, it's hard to get lost these days. But you can still know where you are and be stranded. Recently, the passengers on a research ship knew their precise location in the frozen seas off Antarctica, but that didn't thaw the ice around them. Next, rescue after spending weeks trapped at the bottom of the world. You're stranded on Big Picture Science. When BBC radio producer Andrew Luck Baker joined the Australasian Antarctic Expedition in December 2013, the manifest was straightforward. We left New Zealand towards the beginning of December. We had five days crossing the Southern Ocean, and eventually we got to Antarctica. It was the very route of explorer Sir Douglas Mawson of a hundred years earlier, with the exception that Mawson left from Tasmania. The Australian geologist led the original Australasian Antarctic expedition between 1911 and 1914, a trip that included tragedy and being stranded and nearly ended in total disaster. But it was also a tale of almost unimaginable endurance. 
and a considerable amount of science. Andrew joined others in a centenary celebration of the anniversary of Sir Mawson's trip. A bunch of scientists, plus operational staff, plus three journalists, and a bunch, more than 20, paying tourists. They all arrived in Antarctica just fine, but leaving, well, on December 24th, the ship became stuck in ice. But Andrew knew just where they were. He was 100 miles east of the French Antarctic station, but still 1,500 miles shy of Tasmania. The radio technology on board allowed the captain to send out a distress signal, but no technology could move that ice. We began to get surrounded by increasing numbers of rafts and flows of ice. By the time we got to Christmas Eve, literally in a matter of hours, we weren't going anywhere. We had this briefing in the morning where they basically said that uh, the captain had in fact issued a, a distress call, an international distress call for ships to come and help us. And this was because not only were we going nowhere, there were also some very large icebergs that were travelling in our general direction. Now, it wasn't thought at the time that anyone was going to um, crash into us, um, but one was going to pass in front of the boat by, you know, just a matter of um, a couple of 100 metres. So that's when the captain hit the red button, and we knew that we were going to be there for some time. Now, Andrew, you said that the the captain hit the red button. I don't know if that was a metaphoric description, or if there really was a flashing red light, or whatever it was. No, nothing, nothing, nothing so dramatic. Okay, but then when you realized you were stranded, what went through your mind? Well, I mean, to be frank, because I'm a I'm a BBC uh, producer, I thought, well, I better let the BBC newsroom know about this. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the first thing that I did, really. I kind of, I had this satellite uh, transmitter with me, so I sort of rushed up to the top deck with my satellite phone, um, got in contact with the newsroom in, in London uh, to let them know what was going on. And, uh, and then for the next ooh, uh, nine days, more or less the whole time we were stranded in the ice, I didn't, you know, I spent so much time talking to my colleagues, uh, doing interviews with them, Um, I didn't really have that much time to get worried with you, to be quite frank. You didn't feel stranded because you had all of that technology at your disposal. Yeah, well, I I was very well connected to the outside world. It wasn't so much the case for, you know, the other people on the expedition, particularly, you know, the people who were paying to be there, the tourists. And, I mean, I know, you know, in conversation with them, I know that they were very much more feeling uh, more isolated. And I think therefore possibly um, a little bit more vulnerable. They were maybe um, affected a little bit more kind of psychologically that by the predicament that we, we were in, this being, you know, a toy thing of the elements. There was, I suppose it was one moment when I, that I did start getting a little bit frightened, and that was one lunchtime, and we were sitting down, and we actually felt the whole ship sort of tilting to one side. I mean, not by very much, but it was, you could, you could feel it and you could see things kind of beginning to kind of tip up. And that was, I have to say, that was alarming. I was thinking, wow, you know, this ice is really, really powerful. And how much further are we going to tip over? You know, fortunately, we didn't go any further. The captain redistributed water in the ballast system. And so uh, that righted us. Well, I'd like to talk about your rescue in a moment. But first, let's contrast your stranding with that 
of one that happened about 100 years ago. And that was part of the focus of your trip. Scientists on your expedition were doing experiments, and you were reporting on them, I take it, to determine how environmental conditions have changed in Antarctica since the area was first explored by the Australian geologist Douglas Mawson. He got stranded as well. What happened to him? Wow. Well, I mean, we had it easy. We, we had a picnic compared to Mawson. Well, he, was, he ended up being stranded in Antarctica for a, a year longer than he had anticipated. And uh, this was the result of a horrendous trek that he and two other guys uh, went on. Um, really tough going. They had some dogs with them. Um, they got to a point where they decided they ought to turn back because otherwise they were going to um, miss the ship. Um, so off they go, heading back towards home. And unfortunately, one of them, the young British officer, disappears down a crevasse with a sledge. He is killed. But on that sledge was most of their food for the rest of the ex- for the rest of their trek and all of the dog food. So they were in a bit of a predicament. Because they're so short of food, they start eating the dogs. Unfortunately, they were also eating the dog's livers, which is packed with vitamin A. Some level of vitamin A is obviously essential. Too much is really dangerous. Their skin started falling off. They started getting terrible stomach aches. And unfortunately, this, uh, this Swiss Mertz, he was so badly affected that he died. So there you go. There's Mawson now completely um, by himself. And he knew that he had to get back before the ship left for Australia. Terror, you know, I mean, you, you can't begin to kind of imagine how awful, terrifying, psychologically damaging that kind of uh, situation must have been. I mean, eventually he got back to the hut, but unfortunately the ship had left just a couple of hours beforehand. Now, he wasn't completely alone. There were five others who, who'd actually stayed behind and he was stuck there. He had to go through another dark Antarctic winter and wait for the ship to come back about a year later. Well, you were rescued. You didn't have to wait. You didn't have to spend a year in Antarctica before you were rescued. What happened? How did you finally get off that block of ice? Well, finally, we had this Chinese breaker that was, in fact, itself got stuck in ice trying to get to us. They provided their helicopter to airlift us from the ice by our ship and they carried us in parties of 10 for an amazing 10-minute chopper ride across to you might describe as clear water where the where there was this Australian big Australian icebreaker but it wasn't another three weeks till we got to Tasmania I have to say when the helicopter picked you up did it land on on your ship or did it land on ice an ice flow nearby and you had to go and get onto that ice flow and get onto the helicopter yeah, so what happened was that, I mean, we, you know, there was plenty of ice around us. Uh, couldn't land on the ship. So in the, the day before we expected it, we were hoping it was going to pick us up, we actually built a helipad in, on the ice. Um, you, so, built, you built a helicopter pad? Well, you didn't, you didn't really have to do very much. It was just a question of pushing down the, down the snow, crunching down the snow with, um, with our boots. So, Andrew, it seems as though that Nature really does want us to take notice. I mean, with all of our technology, we're still at the mercy of the elements. And I wonder if we crave that a little. Well, in one way, I suppose it's kind of good to know that there's part of the world where humans have very little control um, and that we are 
at the mercy of the elements. You know, Antarctica is not a place you can tame. Um, you know, Antarctica is the boss. You're not the boss when you're down there. But the other side, I mean, you know, let's let's not get over romantic about this. You know, this is the place that that kills people and can kill people. And you know, if uh, those icebergs had been on a slightly different trajectory, they could have killed us. You know, it, it could have ended really, really nastily for us down there. And I suppose that Douglas Mawson would have loved to have had some of the technology that you had, that he he did not want to be stuck on the ice for a year or lose his companions the way that he did in such a horrific way, and that we have all the technology now and the safety provided by it, but 100 years ago, he would have loved to have some of that for himself. Oh, absolutely. You know, if you think about the, the clothes that he wore compared to, you know, all these incredibly engineered um, all-weather gear that we were in. Yeah, and he was out there for for months and months in the open air uh, camping. You know, we were on a ship, nice heated ship, and we had all our, you know, expensive Gore-Tex and uh, and all our kind of high-tech fibres to keep us safe and warm. But then again, you know, as I say, if things had turned nasty, that wouldn't have saved us. Well, Andrew Luck-Baker, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. We reached Andrew at his home, where he's very happy to be now in the UK. He's a science reporter and producer for the BBC. Well, as we're hearing, knowing where you are won't necessarily keep you from being stranded. It still happens, and sometimes it's a good thing. Stranding can be a creative engine on islands, for example. Creatures that evolve there might in the absence of predators, exhibit gigantism and evolve to a much larger size, such as the dodo, or dwarfism, like diminutive elephants. What happens in isolated habitats can certainly increase the diversity of species, but how do creatures get there in the first place? I'm Alan Decatos. I'm an evolutionary biologist at the University of Nevada, Reno. What he proposes helps explain not just the populating of islands, but of continents, too. Alan DeCados is in Reno and landlocked. I mean, he's in Nevada, for goodness sakes. That would seem like a kind of stranding for an animal or plant. But change your temporal mindset to deep time. And what is land can become sea and vice versa. Over many millions of years, land and oceans are impermanent. The explorer and meteorologist Alfred Wagner was among the first to recognize this. In the early part of the 20th century, he was looking at a map of the world, a paper map. And he noticed that the tip of South America fit nicely with the west coast of Africa, like two pieces of a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. Of course, others had noticed this too, but Wagner was the one who proposed a theory of drifting continents to explain this fit. That there was a time when Africa and the Americas were one, part of a supercontinent called Pangaea. So being on a continent doesn't mean that you are eternally stranded. I mean, for one thing, it might break up, like Gondwana, the southern half of the supercontinent Pangaea, did. And the separated members of a species can ultimately get their own large hunk of real estate. I mean, that's the standard explanation for why closely related species are found on land masses that are oceans apart. Back to Alan Decatos in Reno. He doesn't think that continental drift can explain how all species have gone their separate ways, although the drift part might, because he says that some species found new homes by riding much smaller vessels and at a much quicker pace. An iceberg, a clot of dirt, a puff of wind can carry creatures across the sea. 
So reptiles, primates, and spiders become unwitting immigrants on a long, perilous voyage to a new land. It was the DNA of these creatures that provided the strong evidence for this theory of watery voyages. By testing species on both sides of an ocean, geneticists could figure out when they became separated. Dr. Decato's book is The Monkey's Voyage, How Improbable Journeys Shape the History of Life. But we'll begin with the tortoise. Some people actually saw a tortoise that floated up on the beach in Tanzania. Um, This was just a couple of years ago. And it actually had barnacles growing on its shell, which indicated that it had been just floating in the water for probably at least six weeks. And it had probably come from the island of Aldabra, which is more than 400 miles away. So in that case, it was literally just an animal floating in the ocean and drifting with the currents and making landfall, in this case, in Africa. So this turtle, this tortoise, I guess I should say, this tortoise actually just sort of swam. I mean, what? how did it eat all that time? Uh, Six weeks. I mean. Presumably it didn't eat at all. In fact, it was kind of emaciated, but it, but it was a big animal. It was one of these giant tortoises from Aldabra, so it had plenty of sort of reserves to make it that far. But it was emaciated by the time it reached Africa probably wasn't swimming at all. Tortoises don't swim well. So it was literally just floating in the water and being carried by the prevailing currents. Now, in general, when species decide to, well, they don't make this decision, I suppose, but when they manage uh, these uh, transoceanic voyages, I mean, 400 miles is, you know, already pretty far. Are they all floating? I mean, or, or do they sort of hitch a ride on something? Um, Yeah, well, there's probably many different ways that both plants and animals have reached, you know, remote islands or across oceans between continents. So an obvious thing is that animals like mammals or lizards probably need a natural raft of some sort to make it across an ocean or to make it a long way to a remote island. Often probably what happens is some big piece of earth comes off like perhaps during a storm or something um, on the from the banks of a big river. And if it has some organisms on it, like lizards or mammals, like rodents or something, they get washed down to the sea. And then if that raft catches a current, again, it can go you know, a long, long ways in the ocean with these organisms on it. Have we actually seen that? I mean, do sailors ever see sort of a floating natural raft, sort of a contiki for critters? <laughs> yeah, so people have actually seen this quite a few times, um, not necessarily with animals on them, although there are, there are a few cases where there have been animals on these rafts too, but really large rafts like this have actually been spotted. Um, one case I particularly remember is there was a raft that had 30-foot tall trees growing on it that was seen off the coast of North America. And then it was actually, the, the very same raft was actually spotted sometime later, I think maybe even more than a month later, a thousand miles away from where it had originally been spotted. And well, a, th- a thousand miles away. I mean, now we're talking about distances that would allow you to cross, uh, you know, something like the Atlantic. There seems to be no limit to how far they can go. Yeah, well, that's probably true in the sense of there's probably no limit for certain kinds of organisms. There's even one case of a group of iguanas. This is a little bit controversial, but there are iguanas that live Fiji and Tonga, and it looks like they came from the New World, it looks like they crossed almost the entire Pacific to get to Fiji and Tonga. Maybe you could give me a short list of of creatures that we know that have made these kinds of migrations. The list is actually very long, but some kind of striking ones, the, the most striking one probably is monkeys crossing the Atlantic. 
So there, there are monkeys in both the New World and the Old World. And it's pretty clear that they originated in the Old World. So the question is, how did they get to the New World? And it looks like they crossed the Atlantic, and mainly from um, genetic evidence about well, not just genetic evidence, both fossil and genetic evidence about the age of monkeys and the possible routes they could have taken. And also rodents, things like guinea pigs and capybaras that are in South America. It looks like their ancestor also crossed the Atlantic a bit earlier than the monkeys probably. There are many other cases. So, for example, the island of New Zealand, it looks like almost the entire flora of New Zealand arrived there by crossing oceans. You know, th this idea that species can, in fact, colonize territory that's on the other side of an ocean, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, okay, well, I'm not so surprised by that. I don't, I don't know what fraction of them actually make it. But, I mean, if you, you know, you're, you're knocked off a riverbank on a clod of dirt, even if it's the size of a house, <laughs> I mean, you know, you still might not make it. But, but that idea doesn't strike me as incredibly radical. It's just in the context of what we thought happened about why, for example, as you mentioned, the monkeys of South America are clearly related to the monkeys of Africa, but that they got separated when Gondwana land broke up 100, 150 million years ago when, when you know, South America moved away from Africa. These guys were isolated. Wasn't that the, the way we figured this had happened? Yeah. So there's kind of an, I mean, in this book that I've written, The Monkey's Voyage, a lot of it really focuses on this kind of trajectory of what people believed about how it is that related species have ended up on different sides of oceans. Darwin actually was a big believer in these ocean crossings, you know, things moving across oceans on natural rafts or being stuck to the feathers of birds or something like that. But this field of biogeography, which is the study of kind of um, where things live and why they live where they do, it went through sort of several different stages. And one of the most recent stages was, was kind of promoted by the idea of continental drift. So when continental drift was validated, and this was in the 60s, then people realized, well, oh, wow, you know, continental drift can explain these weird distributions where related species are in different sides of an ocean. And so a lot of people started using that as kind of the default explanation and just thinking, wow, we can explain all of these things by, in, in sort of the most extreme case, thinking we can explain all of these weird distributions by continental drift. Well, perhaps you can tell me how you could tell the difference. I mean, all right, I see I see some monkeys in South America, and clearly they're monkeys, and they're related to these African monkeys. They don't look quite the same. They've had some time to do their own evolutionary thing. But how do I know that the monkeys in South America didn't just get separated from their ancestors, you know, 150 million years ago as, as the Atlantic began to spread apart? A key kind of evidence is from DNA sequences, basically. And so people have looked at the DNA of monkeys on both sides of the Atlantic. And from the similarity in their, the DNA sequences of the New World ones on the one hand and the Old World ones on the other, you can tell at least roughly how long ago the New World lineage split from the Old World lineage. And when you get that information, what you find is that Monkeys are just not old enough to have been affected by the opening of the Atlantic Ocean, that is, the, the separation of South America and Africa. So that separation can't explain why they're on both sides of the Atlantic, because monkeys basically weren't in existence when the two continents were together. So it has to be some other explanation. And the something else often is 
ocean crossings. So for these sorts of species, the ones that can undertake transoceanic voyages, they're, they're, really, <laughs> they're, they're not stranded. They're not stuck where they are. They, could, they can go from one continent to another. The earth is not too big for them to populate as much of it as, as they're suited for. Yeah, well, I'd say, I mean, it, it's sort of all kind of a continuum. So, you know, for for things like, say, very large mammals like rhinos or elephants, there's no evidence that they've crossed, say, thousands of miles of ocean. So so it is kind of a continuum, and, it you know, it's different for different kinds of organisms. So it's not like everything is just going willy-nilly all over the place. But I, I guess the, the larger point is that this kind of thing happens enough, and it sort of happens more than you would expect, or it, it's really placed a large stamp on the history of life. It's really changed the way things are. There may be some evolutionary consequences for species that are stranded, right? I mean, if you're on an, on an island, even a big island, you know, you might uh, develop gigantism or something. I mean, you, you might not have the kind of predators that you would have if you weren't isolated from uh, so much of the, the rest of the Earth's fauna. Yeah, so that's right. There are all kinds of effects, sort of evolutionary effects of being on an island. Yeah, like so island gigantism, so to speak, is is one of the things. Like a lot of organisms, when they get, you know, stuck on islands, so to speak, they become much larger than their relatives. Or for, I think, a lot of plants, they become woody. Island insects often lose the ability to fly. Maybe the worst thing that could happen to you is that some natural raft shows up on the beach and brings predators to your island. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, what's, what seems to be happening these days is people have brought these predators to islands all over the place where they weren't naturally occurring, and that, that's had a horrible effect. Alan DeCatos, thank you so very much for being with us today. Okay, thank you. It's good being here. Alan DeCatos is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Nevada in Reno, and he's the author of The Monkey's Voyage, How Improbable Journeys Shape the History of Life. There is one career choice you can make in which priority one is not to be stranded. An astronaut explains, coming up. It's big picture science. Even if you've never been to space, you can imagine the experience of floating weightless over our planet, taking in the amazing views, the wonder of it all. And you can imagine the terror of being stuck there, of not being able to return to Earth, of your tether breaking on a spacewalk and you floating away for eternity. And if you can't picture that, the film Gravity will do it for you. Not being stranded in space is one of the top concerns of an astronaut, along with surviving the launch from a massive rocket built with thousands of parts supplied by the lowest bidders. Well, only a few are willing to undergo such a perilous challenge, and those who do make it seem easy. Chris Hadfield is the author of An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, What Going Into Space Taught Me About Ingenuity, Determination, and Being Prepared for Anything. And you may know him from a YouTube video he made of singing a David Bowie song, strumming a guitar while in space. As we said, some make it look easy. But there's no mistaking the fact that a spacewalk is not a cakewalk. It's taken very seriously. Uh, doing a spacewalk is different than everything else that you do in life. You know, everything else pales in comparison. And the reason it is two or threefold. Number one, you're doing something really rare, really hard, really dangerous that you've trained for for years and years. So there's kind of an air of importance to what's happening. The second is you are in between 
the world and the universe, and you're holding on with one hand. And that is an amazing place to be, to have the spaceship in one hand and look over to your right and see the whole world roaring by. And if you look over to your left, there's uh, the bottomless bucket of the universe. It's it's an amazing experience visually and uh, psychologically and uh, professionally. I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> One thing that I like to do when I'm flying is to uh, get a window seat and just watch the geography below. But you've been considerably higher than that. And maybe you could describe the view from space. What have you seen that's truly extraordinary? Seth, I've been around the world 2,500 times. And on the space station, you go five miles a second. So you cross the whole country in about nine minutes from one side to the other. And the beauty of it is the angle between you and the earth and the sun constantly changes. So it's as if some giant uh, lighting technician is moving his huge light the whole time to show you the world in all different textures and colors. And you see stuff in the glint of the sun and, and in the shadows that you just marvel at. It, it's, it's as if the world is just constantly showing you uh, its secrets, its most beautiful aspects, and it's constantly shifting and changing every time you come around. It's gorgeous. Let me return just briefly, Chris, to this matter of being outside the space station, doing spacewalk, doing whatever it is you do outside the, uh, the station. You're in your own space capsule in a way because your space suit is, you know, between you and, and space protecting you. Is there any sense of vulnerability there? I mean, it would seem that there should be because you are in some ways exposed to enormous danger. Uh, your spacesuit is a one-person spaceship. Absolutely. It looks sort of like a suit of clothing, but in truth, it's just a well-fitting spaceship. And you get, you're completely self-contained from the space station. The only thing connecting you is like a clothesline on a little spring. So, yeah, you are vulnerable. You're at a much higher level of risk than if you stayed inside the spaceship or, or if you stayed home in bed. But at the same time... It allows us, of course, to fix the space station, which uh, we go outside and do occasionally, maybe to go out and retrieve some experiments that we've been gathering to try and understand everything we need to know to, to explore space. But also, you're outside uh, seeing the world. You could not see the world the same way. The difference between sitting in your living room and looking out through you know, a bay window to hanging on the side of Half Dome in Yosemite or something, that's that different a visceral experience to be outside. Have you seen the movie Gravity, Chris? I was at the North American premiere of Gravity, in fact, so I, I, <laughs> I, I have indeed, yeah. Well, it gave me kind of a visceral feeling as to what it might be like to float away in space, you know, to, that that horrible scene that is in so many movies where an astronaut sort of loses his grips and whatever is keeping him tethered to uh, the craft uh, somehow gives way. Did that feel accurate? And if that were to happen, I mean, is, are you really a goner? Is there any chance <laughs> of recovery there? You know, in the old days, uh, before the space shuttle was docked with a, any ship, when you're outside on a spacewalk, if you floated away, the space shuttle isn't anchored anywhere. It could just fire its thrusters and come get you. But once you're on a space station, it's a lot less maneuverable, a ship. And if you float away from the space station, then you would be a goner. So we thought of it. We, you know, we're not just a movie character panicking, but we thought of it for years. And uh, number one is we, we're very careful and we, we hold on all the time. We don't randomly throw ourselves off the station. Number two, we're wearing a, uh, a long tether, about 60-foot long tether that will save you. But 
just in case, because things do break and fail. If that tether were to break and we were to go tumbling off into space, we were a jetpack. And it's designed and built for us. It's it's really it's not like like George Clooney's uh, inexhaustible joyriding jetpack, but but it's it's a um, it uses compressed nitrogen. We wear it on our back. If you went tumbling off, you'd pull this handle. Out comes a joystick, and you have a limited amount of time to get yourself stopped, turned, fly back, and grab back onto the space station. It's something we have to qualify on in virtual reality on Earth before they'll let you do a real spacewalk. And we don't ever want to use it. It's like a parachute. But if we need it, it's there. Chris, you've written that being in orbit is magic. You can do things that are quite impossible on Earth. Maybe you could give me some examples of what you mean by the magic there. You can push off from the wall with one finger and fly across the room. You can do a thousand somersaults. You can just play with everything. Things behave so differently. You know, you can take a a tube of shaving cream, squeeze it, and that normal stuff that will kind of blob out will come out for feet in a straight line. And then if you release the shaving cream tube, it'll go and suck exactly straight back in again because it's weightless. It behaves so different. And every time you float by the window, the whole world is pouring by next to you. And... If that's not magic, then I don't know what is. <laughs> well, you got pretty famous by bringing the magic to Earth by singing David Bowie's Space Oddity while on the International Space Station. And that video became a YouTube sensation. Uh, what was it that prompted you to do this? I've been a musician my whole life, and I recorded some music on the space station. And as soon as people noticed that there was not just an astronaut, but also a musician on the space station, there was a great demand for, hey, you got to record Space Oddity while they're up there, which was really strange to me. I never covered Bowie before, but <laughs> I did it. And I think it's a real tribute to the genius of Bowie himself is that the words, when sung in that place, sort of changed. The feeling of it was of the place. And that crept into my voice without me even trying, just because of the way the song's written. And that, combined with the fantasy of the song, with the reality of a human creation, of being able to use that laboratory, not just for science, but also for human culture, to see that extension, to see that fantasy made real. So it was a real delight to show what exploration can mean, not just at the science and research level, but at the fundamental human cultural level. Chris, there was a situation where you realized you couldn't see out of one eye. What was happening there? Uh, During my first spacewalk, um, there was contamination inside my spacesuit. And your head is in a big, like a fishbowl of a bubble. You can't touch your face. You can't rub your eye. In fact, you you can't even touch anything really with your face at all, even if you lean forward. And the contamination got in my left eye. It was as if somebody had just squirted, you know, jalapeno oil in in your eye. And your eye just hurts and screams and, and snaps shut and starts tearing. And you can't rub it. You can't uh, dilute it with water. You know, if that happened at home, you'd run under a sink and start dousing it with uh, diluting water. You can't do any of those things. Um, And so my eye just started tearing up. But I figured, well, I have another eye, so I can still see and and I can still hear and function. And so I just kept working. I thought, it'll probably clear. It's just a bit of something in my eye. But unfortunately, without gravity, tears don't fall. They don't drain. You just get a bigger and bigger ball of contaminated tear on your eye until eventually that ball got so big 
that it crossed into my other eye. And then both my eyes were contaminated and I was blinded. And uh, we didn't know what the cause was. All we knew was I couldn't see. But I just kept working and crying and tearing, you know, holding on, uh, working the problem until after about, I don't know, in the order of a half hour, I had generated enough tears that it had diluted enough that I could start to see again. And Houston said they agreed that we could get back to work. And uh, Scott Perezinski and I spent about eight hours outside total. We got everything done, even with me being blinded for a half hour in the middle of it. What's it like to uh, be blind and, and, and also weightless so you can't tell whether you're drifting into a wall? Uh, well, you sure don't let go. You never drift when you're on a spacewalk. You hold on. You keep control. It was it was actually strangely peaceful. I was holding on to the space station, and I just couldn't see. But I could still hear. I could talk to Mission Control in Houston. I could talk to Scott that I was out there with. I could still think. It was just a matter of how are we going to deal with this. And it wasn't the first time we'd ever thought about it. Scott and I had practiced rescuing each other many times in the big underwater training pool. And for someone far more incapacitated than I was, for someone who's had a heart attack or someone who's lost communication or had a leak in their suit or something, my only problem was I just couldn't see. And that's why we train so long, so that we're not only ready for things to go right, but we are uh, as ready as we can possibly be for uh, things going wrong, because things always go wrong. Chris Hadfield, thank you so very much for talking with us. Nice speaking with you, Seth. Thanks very much. Chris Hadfield is an astronaut and the author of An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, What Going to Space Taught Me About Ingenuity, Determination, and Being Prepared for Anything. You can find a link to his Space Oddity video on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, only a select few face the possible stranding that comes with the spacewalk, but we all face a kind of ultimate cosmic stranding. And on that, Seth gets the last word. As we've heard, after a few thousand years of effort, we finally developed the means to always know where we are. But we can still be stranded, like Tom Hanks was in the movie Cast Away, alone on a Pacific island with no hope of rescue and only a volleyball for company. And indeed, we are stranded on an isolated patch of real estate called Earth. When seen from space, even nearby space, our home world is no more than a speck, a pale blue dot, as astronomer Carl Sagan described it, But pale is not what's truly important about Earth. Dim is what we are, not personally, but our home world, a dim blue dot. Because Earth is far less than a billionth as bright as the sun and excruciatingly hard to find. Earth's plants and animals, a million species or more, well, we're all lost in space or rather stranded in space. And unless rockets of the future can somehow overcome the tyranny of cosmic distance, we will spend our futures forever trapped in this relatively tiny bit of real estate we call the solar system. But just as modern polar explorers can still communicate, even if stranded, perhaps we too can reach out to other life forms isolated on distant planets. Simply to learn of their existence could give us hope for our own future. Simply to learn of their existence could give us hope for our future. And if they can make a go of it, then maybe we can too. And in the meantime, well... At least we have one another and some volleyballs. Our production team stands alone. 
Gary Niederhoff, and Barbara Vance. Also support from Google and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Stranded. But it's not the only episode. There's more on Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. While you're online, you might find and even download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because it helps you feel more connected with others, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like this show. Where is the coffee shop again? 35 Main Street. And where am I? 33 Main Street. Okay, map it. Seriously? Just take like five more steps. Oh, okay. Now where is it? You passed it.